Last week, we began on the topic of honoring access. There is a parallel idea that runs hand in hand with learning to honor access rather than access causing an apathetic heart. We talked about this last week. That idea is persevering. Everybody heard that word? If you've been in church at all, you've heard that phrase, persevere, or that word, persevere. Um, To persevere means to persist in a state, enterprise, or undertaking in spite of counter-influences, opposition, and discouragement. Say this one more time. To persevere means to persist, stay consistent, in a state of enterprise, or excuse me, in a state, enterprise, or undertaking in spite of counter-influences, opposition, or discouragement. In my few years of marriage counseling with young couples, and in my own marriage, I've realized love isn't the only quality that keeps the fire burning. Amen. Well, how many married couples do we have in here? One. Great. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you're married, but you know. Um, <laughs> uh, how many about to be married? Just kidding. Some, of the, some people that are dating are like... Um, y'all got, I know y'all was up late last night watching fireworks, but come on. Come on. Okay? In my years... I've learned that love, despite what everybody thinks, love is not the only quality that keeps the fire burning. But love coupled with perseverance. When our love is opposed, just speaking about you know, myself and Jordan, when our love is opposed, perseverance steps in to make up for the deficiency and when utilized correctly, actually gives us a greater measure of love than we had before on the back end. So if love is a seed, I'm going to carry this analogy in for a few minutes. If love is a seed, perseverance is the water that keeps it fed. Are y'all with me? Okay. So then what is the sun in this analogy? The sun is the ever-consistent ever-reliable goodness of a God who is madly in love with His creation. There's no question if the sun will rise every day, and there's no questioning if Yahweh will be present and accessible every day. So in Christianity, many, if not most, start well. Few end well. The difference is not the sun... For it's, it's constant and never changing, okay? So the difference is not God. God is constant and never changing. It's not the seed of love, for it is but a seed of what could be if cultivated correctly and consistently. So that leaves one variable, perseverance, that becomes the water for the love seed that when exposed to the ever-constant rays of Yahweh grows into a tree bearing fruit and seeds for others to eat and grow from. So if, if many start well and few end well, it's not God. God is consistent. He never changes. So he doesn't change from when you accepted Jesus at 8 and when you are far from Jesus at 80. He doesn't change. 
love doesn't change. Your feelings might change, but love, in my opinion, is not something that varies. Love is constant. In my opinion, what varies is perseverance. Remember the, remember the definition of perseverance. Let me say this one more time just so you have an idea. We hear words a lot that a lot of times we don't know what they mean. To persevere means to stay consistent in spite of counter-influences, opposition, or discouragement. Man, I watched the Office episode the other day, and he told a joke in uh, introducing Dwight at the uh, sales convention. Anybody watch the Office? Yeah, no? Yeah, Jordan hates it, but do you guys watch The Office? Yeah, you do? Okay, yeah. And uh, anyway, and he was telling these jokes over and over and over, and the crowd was just staring at him, and he walks off stage, and he's like, good luck, that's a really tough crowd. That's what I just thought about a second ago. Okay. But I love y'all. We actually have an entire book of the Bible specifically dedicated to perseverance that most didn't know. It's Hebrews. Okay, Hebrews is a sermon, the book of Hebrews is a sermon from the first century whose author is unknown, though many speculate it's Paul. Um, I think it's possible. I'm not 100% sold on it, but the author is unknown. Uh, It was not written to Hebrews, as its name would suggest. A lot of people think because it's named Hebrew, it was written to Hebrews. It was not. Uh, But it was written to an audience or a congregation of both Greeks and Jewish Christians. Much of the New Testament, specifically Paul, is written establishing a new way or a new age. Hebrews is not doing this, though it has groundbreaking revelations. Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who for a period of time stood bold in the face of scorn, rejection, plundering of property, imprisonment, and hardships. But with the passing time, the loss of honor and place in society has started to hurt the commitment of some who had even started to leave the group. So the book of Hebrews is written to a group of people who in the beginning, despite opposition, despite ridicule, despite people stealing their stuff for being Christians, they stood strong and persevered. But through the years of losing their place in society and losing how people see them and losing their literal possessions, through the years, they've started to kind of slide off of this new Christian thing. And a lot of them had actually left the group. And that's where the author of Hebrews steps in. And in a moment of growing apathetic, he introduces, or she, introduces a new piece to the new movement of Christianity in the earth that would allow the glory to glory plan of salvation to flow through every generation to us today. Perseverance requires two things. This is what we're going to talk about today. Perseverance requires two things. Faith and honoring or remember where Yahweh has brought you from and what Yahweh has done. If you were here last week, that sounds very familiar. Okay, Perseverance requires two things. I'm about to read this in Hebrews. It requires faith and honoring where Yahweh has brought you from or remembering. So the ideas that I'm going to try to tie together are 
how we can get to the place of remaining consistent despite opposition or counter-influence while living in a state of faith and remembering where Yahweh has brought us from. And I actually want to read something. I meant to bring my book up here, so I'm going to get real unprofessional and jump down and grab my book. All right, let me just read this to you, okay? This is in C.S. Lewis's book. I'm going to read the whole book real quick. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not. Um, I'm just going to read a paragraph. I just, this is from C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. So I'm going to start here, and I'm going to spend a lot of time setting up where we're going, okay? So he says this. He says, the sin, he's talking about how sin entered the world. The sin of Adam and Eve has been described by St. Augustine as the result of pride, of the movement whereby a creature that is in essentially dependent being whose principle of existence lies not in itself, but in another, okay? So his sin of pride, which is the movement where a creature who is completely dependent on another tries to set up on its own to exist for itself. I'm going to explain this in a second. Such a sin requires no complex social conditions, no extended experience, no great intellectual development. From the moment a creature becomes aware of God as God and of itself as self, the terrible alternative of choosing God or self for the center is open to it. The sin is committed daily by young children and ignorant peasants, as well as by sophisticated persons, by solitaries, no less than by those who live in society. It is the fall of every individual life in each day of each individual life, the basic sin behind all particular sins. At this moment, you and I are either committing it or about to commit it, or repenting of it. We try, when we wake, to lay the new day of God at God's feet. We try, when we wake up, to lay the new day at God's feet. Before we have finished shaving, it becomes our day, and God's share in it is felt as a tribute, which we must pay out of our own pocket, a deduction from the time which we ought, we feel, to be our own. A man starts a new job with a sense of vocation and perhaps for the first week still keeps the discharge of the vocation as his end, taking the pleasure and pains from God's hands as they come as accidents. But in the second week, he's beginning to know the ropes. And by the third week, he has quarried out of the total job his own plan for his own self within that job when he can pursue this he feels he's getting no more than his rights. And when he cannot, he feels that he's being interfered with. A lover, I'm almost done. Just hang with me. I'm, I know this is a lot. I'm just going to explain it in a second. A lover in obedience to a quite uncalculating impulse, excuse me, which may be full of goodwill as well as of desire and need not be forgetful of God, embraces his beloved, and then, quite innocently, experience the thrill of their pleasure. 
But the second embrace may have that pleasure in view, and it may be a means to an end. It may be the first downward step towards the state of regarding a fellow creature as a thing, as a machine to be used for your own pleasure. Thus, the bloom of innocence, the element of obedience and readiness to take what comes is rubbed off of every activity. Thoughts undertaken for God's sake, like that on which we are engaged at the moment, are continued as if they were an end in themselves, and then as if our pleasure in thinking were the end, and finally as if our pride or celebrity were the end. Thus, all day long, last sentence, all day long, all the days of our lives, we are sliding, slipping, falling away as if God were, to our present consciousness, a smooth, inclined plane on which there is no resting. So, I know that's a lot, but I wanted to read it from him, one, because I hate stealing people's stuff, but two, I read that this week and thought it was brilliant in describing the first part of this that Yahweh wants us to really hit for a moment. Before we go deeper on remembering, which is where we're going to start, the first thing I want to deal with is what is technically called pathological narcissism. Pathological narcissism. This is when you think and speak a self-important reality for so long, it distorts authentic reality. I feel like this is more of a teaching than it is preaching, but that's okay. Pathological narcissism. When you think something about yourself for so long, you actually believe it's reality. All right, let me explain this. The sin of Adam was not eating a fruit. Let me, all right, let me help you all out, okay? Sin did not enter into and demolish the whole planet of the earth because they took a bite of a fruit. Eating the fruit was manifested from the true sin of self-reliance or importance, also known as pride. Think back, think back. All right. In Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, in my opinion, the, most three, the three most important chapters of your whole Bible. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Adam and Eve, God creates, everything's good, places them in a garden, gives them the command to tend the garden, gives them the command to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And he, he gave them one command, one command. You can eat of everything in this whole garden, but that one tree right there, just don't touch that one. Okay, now I'm not going to get too deep into this. That's where a lot of people start asking questions. Why would God even put the tree in the garden, etc.? We're not going to get into that. But here's what I want to point out is that number one, the tree of life was not, was not a tree the Lord told them they couldn't eat of. So they could have walked right up to the tree of life, taken the fruit and eaten all they wanted to. But the one tree he told them do not eat from was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The serpent comes into the garden, goes to Eve, and he says what? The Lord doesn't want you to eat that fruit because he knows if you eat it, you'll be like him. 
Now, this is where I've taught before. They were already like him. But here's what I want to put this one thing right here. The one thing that differentiated Adam and God, because he was made in the likeness of God. Okay? So the one thing that differentiated Adam and God was that Adam was totally and completely reliant on God. You remove God from the story, Adam doesn't exist. You remove Adam from the story, God still exists. Right? So in the moment, what the enemy is offering is not just a bunch of knowledge of good and evil. What the enemy is offering is a break from reliance on God. Are y'all with me? So in the moment, he's saying, if you eat that, you'll be just like God. And the, the thought hits him. Wait a minute. If we eat that, we might not need God. Why else would they do it? I mean, I don't think there was anything in Eve and Adam that said, man, it'd be fun to be disobedient today. They didn't even know what disobedience was. They had no idea. What, they didn't know what sin was. All they knew was good. So I don't think there was a shred in them that said, hey, man, this would be awesome. Let's just go be disobedient today. And I don't think they're looking around in this garden with all this stuff that the Lord had given them and say, you know what? This stuff stinks. We need to go eat that fruit. Not doing that either. It's a moment. It's a moment where it hits them. We look just like him, and yet we're reliant on him. But if we go eat that, we might not be reliant on him, and we might be him. And so what happens? They eat the fruit, and they send creation into a spiral of decay. Why? Because the ones that were supposed to be in governmental authority over creation were supposed to be submitted to the total reliance of God. And in that moment, they broke reliance from God and started thinking we can do this thing on our own. And a few chapters later, you have the Tower of Babel where they say, let's go build a tower to make our name known. What are they doing? They're saying, we're like God now anyway. We need to be honored like God. And so they start building, and the Lord says, if they're speaking one language in a common idea, nothing will be impossible for them. And he scatters languages. And the entire Old Testament is built year after year, generation after generation of people turning away from God and going to these idols. Why? When I read the Old Testament, I ask why more times than any other question. I'm not asking, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? I'm saying, crazies. You know what I'm saying? And yet, and yet we do the same stuff. There's, there's a lot of moments we think we got control of this. Which is why I said this earlier. We think the church, especially in America, is dem democratic. Democracy. We got a say in this. So people will leave be like, man, I, that music, that wasn't my style today. I didn't like that music today. That preacher, man, if he, would, if he just slow down and he cut it off at 1130, man, we'd be, be going, going good. You know what I'm saying? People want you to wear this. They don't want you to wear this. They want you to sing this. They don't want you to sing this. They want your lights to be like this or not be like this. They want the sound to be like this or not to be like this. What we've done is we've built church off of the needs of people because people have this idea that somehow we are in control of stuff and we are not. We're not in control. That's why I don't sit around, and I'm not saying anything bad about this, but I don't sit around and plan my sermons a year out. 
You know why I don't do that? Because I am not in control. He is in control. He said he would build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If the gates of hell are prevailing against it, that means it's not his church. And he's not in control. So, so man, 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 man. So we're in a pandemic right now. We're in a pandemic right now that a lot of people in the church are submitting to. And, and listen, I, we should be conscious of it. We shouldn't be dumb. We should be smart. We clean like crazy, which we did that before anyway, because it's the Lord's house. But like, you, you shouldn't be afraid. In the first, let me teach y'all something. Let me teach y'all something. Break from this. We'll go back to it in a second. I got a lot of time. So, right, I just, our kids aren't going to have to spend as much time teaching sermons because they're going to grow up knowing. You know what I mean? Half the stuff I preach is fixing things. But it's okay. That's what I'm here for. And I honor how we grew up. They just didn't know what they were talking about. All right, but. In the first and second century, let me just give you a little biblical background, what happened after the New Testament. Revelation ends, and then we go into the first and second century, third century after that. Do you know how the gospel spread? It was through preaching the gospel. It was through worshiping. It was through doing churches. But if you look back in history, a lot of the way that the gospel spread was that they also had pandemics in the first and second centuries. They didn't have hospitals like we have. They didn't have medicines like we have or technology like we have. They didn't have any of that stuff. And so what would happen, especially in Israel and a lot of places around there, is Israel, kind of like Colombia, um, was located in a, in a valley. Okay? If you ever wonder why Colombia is so hot, it's because Colombia is located in a valley. Everything just kind of flows down in. But... So Israel was located in a low place. So when pandemics happened, those low places, because of their geographic location, were a lot more susceptible to severe symptoms of those sicknesses than the high places. So when those pandemics hit, first and second century, it would hit a lot of the places we read about in the New Testament. And here's how the gospel spread in those times. You know how it spread? When that happened, all the rich people packed up and ran for the hills. Do you ever, you ever hear that phrase, run for the hills? That's where this comes from. So all the rich people would pack up and run for the hills to get away from the sickness, while all the poor people were remaining in this geographic location that was so susceptible, catching and dying from these pandemics. What marked the church and spread the gospel is the church, instead of running for the hills, ran into the places to take care of the sick who, before the pandemic, had persecuted them, some of which put them to death. And as they were taking care of the sick, some of them catching and dying from the very thing they were helping out from, all the people who were catching this were looking at them saying, who are you that we persecuted you and now you're helping us? And their response, you can read about this in history, their response from a lot of them was, we serve a God who gave his life for us. The least we can do is give our life for you. And the gospel explodes. If you want a history lesson about pandemics. Right? What we have done, what I have done, is run for the hills. I'm just I'm like, can I just be real? 
Y'all want fake Josh or real Josh? Well, you're never going to get fake Josh. He's dead. You know, just run, just run for the hills. And so what the church is doing, we're, we're submitting to things we were called to put under our own authority. But the reason is, is because somewhere along the line, we thought we were in control of our lives. We, we built up this fantasy that somehow I'm in control of everything that happens in my life. And God is a really nice kind of statue on my mantle that every now and then I need to look at to remind myself what I am. But I'm going to keep rocking and rolling. And that ain't what this is. This, the original sin, sin that entered the world. Do you wonder why Jesus and Paul and the rest of the New Testament writers spend so much time talking about pride and humility? Do you know why? Because the original sin was pride. It was not eating a fruit. They ate the fruit because somewhere inside they believed they could do this better than him. This is built into our DNA. My daughter is awesome, awesome. But kids just naturally want to do things their way. I mean, not just kids, but we'll say, hey, it's, it's 9 o'clock. We got to go to bed. I don't want to go to bed. Right? It's a really simple, that's, I mean, I know it's a really easy example. In that moment, she's saying, I know how to run this better than you do. Do y'all see that? Now, let me talk to older kids. Let me talk to older kids. Like, honor your father and mother, and your days will be long on the earth. It's the only commandment that's connected to the length of your life or your height. Just kidding. It had nothing to do with height, if you're reading the King James. Um, don't read the King James either. But... Listen, what our, pa- our parents, we think our parents don't know anything until we get on the other side of whatever they're trying to give us advice on, and we look back and say, well, made it, wait a minute, they knew exactly what they were talking about. Amen? <laughs> but, but why? Because we believe we can do this. We believe we can run this like we want. Why are so many, man, 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 why are so many people pushing back against laws to protect people right now? Because we think we know what we're doing, and we don't. Do you hear me? I'm not. I, and let me let me put. I don't wear a mask, so I'm not. You know, so I'm throwing myself in this category. I'm not talking about that. But what I'm talking about is there is this constant knee-jerk reaction to authority that says we can do this better than you can. And what Romans 13 says is to honor your government and honor your leaders. And in Hebrews it says to make it a joy for those who lead you and not a hindrance to those who lead you. So we have, a, we have an issue with authority. Why? Because we have an issue believing God can do this better than us at its core. That's how we were built. That's our DNA. And the first thing before we go back and remember and have faith and honor is we got to get it fixed that if it were not for Jesus, I would be nothing. My, Paul says, my righteousness is like filthy rags. Are they now? Absolutely not. Why? Not because I did anything, but because I hid myself in the blood of Jesus. And through him, my righteousness is not like filthy rags anymore. He put a robe on my back and traded my righteousness that was filthy rags for his. But apart from him, that is not possible. 
Dying to self, Ephesians 4, 22-25, is not, as some wrongly believe, killing your individuality. We like to say that a lot in the church. Die to self, die to self, die to self, die to self. And we think that means to kill your individuality. That's what we think. You were created you on purpose. Ephesians 2.10, you are the poetry of God. So dying to self does not mean dying to your individuality. Dying to self means dying to narcissism that plagued who you were before Jesus took the pen of your story. All right. We are in a good world. Would everybody agree with this? I'm, I'm, I'm just messing with you. I know just tri- I'm not trying to trick you. Are we in a good world or a sinful world? Are we, come on, are we, just think, you don't have to answer. Are we in a good world or a sinful world? Let me ask you this. How many people in this room are saved? Okay, okay, that's what I thought. All right. All of you are saved. How many people in this room have committed a sin in any way, shape, or form over the past two months? Okay, right. Does, does your sin define your salvation? Are you still saved? Yes. Yes. So a lot of us call the world sinful because of the presence of sin. When my Bible says, for God so loved, not people, the cosmos, creation, that he gave his only son, that whoever believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the cosmos, but that through him the cosmos might be saved. All of creation, Romans 8, is standing on tiptoe, yearning for the manifestation of the sons and daughters of God, so that with us it might experience freedom from its decay. In Genesis 1, God did not lie when he said, you are good, and that is good, and that is good, and that is very good. So, we do not live in a sinful world. We live in a good world with the presence of sin. So, dying to self is not dying to everything about you. Dying to self is dying to the sin within you. But you are good. Your individuality was created and knit together by God on purpose. The mistake that we can, go back and read if you want to. I was going to do this. i got to save time. Romans 8, 1 through 13. If you want to have fun, check that out later. The mistake we can unknowingly fall into is that in buying into who we are in Christ, which we should do, we forget that we are only that in Christ and foolishly think that this is actually who we are with or without Christ. Are y'all, are y'all with me? I know this is a lot. We, we, so let me talk about beloved, so beloved identity. I can buy into beloved identity, which I should. All of us should be totally convinced you are beloved. But there can be a point where I get to there, and if I refuse to go back and remember 
how I got here, somewhere along the line, I can start seeing myself as beloved, whether or not he ever entered my story. So, so, we'll get, so I could get into ministry and in the beginning be burning hot for the Lord and then 10 years later be preaching without ever having a secret place other than planning a sermon, which is where a lot of ministers are today. It's, it has nothing to do with the ministry. It has everything to do with you being in the secret place and that overflowing into what is ministry. So if I don't, if I'm not cautious and don't remember that everything right here with this mic flows from everything that happens when nobody is watching, if I forget that, I'll start thinking that what's happening here and what's happening here is all about how good I can preach, not about how much I can get surrendered in the secret place and then allow him to use me as a mouthpiece for what he wants to speak. So, so if I'm not careful, as he begins to move over the years, we're two and a half years into this. If I'm not careful, over the years, as he begins to move, I can somehow think, I did this on my own, and I did not. It was by the grace of God that he allowed me to encounter stuff in the secret place that flowed into what we do here. Y'all with me? So this is a lot of just deep-rooted stuff. What did I say last week? The two poisons in the church today are lukewarm Christians and people who refuse to get rooted. So, so what I'm doing today is trying to root us, anchor us in the hope that is a safe haven for our souls. So we are seen as perfect in his eyes, but only because he sees us through Jesus. Abba sees us the same way he sees Jesus. John 17 says that. He sees us and loves us with the same love that he loves Jesus with. When he looks at you, he sees you the same way he looks and sees it Jesus as. Amen? Got to get a little closer. But he sees us as that because we are mingled into and one with Jesus himself. This should not cause us to daily, excuse me, this should cause us to daily submit everything to him because the only way we are anything is because of him. I heard this this morning. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That should cause us to shake in our shoes. And we hear it like it's nothing. You, you are the container of, for the Holy Spirit of Yahweh. The container. That should cause me to literally tremble at the thought that he would put his own spirit in me. And we just think it's nothing. That's cool. Let's have a Holy Ghost service. Like I'm, I'm not looking for a Holy Ghost. I'm looking for Holy Ghost people. I'm looking for temples of Almighty God. If you read the Old Testament, do you understand how, how, how detailed they were in every single detail of the temple? How detailed. This had to be made with this. This had to be made with this. This had to be here. This had to be here. If you don't do it to the T, you'll die. What that's showing us is how holiness enters into our lives and becomes the framework by how we can contain the Spirit of God. So why does holiness matter? Why does uh, purity matter? 
I mean, nobody really cares about purity today. It's 2020. Come on, you know what I mean? Who cares about purity? Because you are a container of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Presence of Yahweh. Your life should be pure and spotless. And I'm not talking about works, but I'm talking about by grace and in the righteousness of God, it unlocks for you the reality that Paul talks about all throughout his writings of living in holiness. And it has nothing to do with you wearing the right stuff and not cutting your hair or do cutting your hair or not wearing makeup or yes, wearing makeup. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with you having a heart that is unstained. But the longer we live in Him, the easier it is to forget in Him. So we do things like give God options. When you leave today, if you remember anything, remember, don't give God options. What is that? We go to God in prayer. God, should I do this or should I do this? How many? I've done that. Right? So, so what I'll do is go plan out these two perfectly, perfectly built options that either one I'm cool with. And I'll go to the Lord and say, Lord, all right, I'm going to submit everything to you. Do you want me to do this or do you want me to do this? And then we wonder why he doesn't answer. Because he's saying, I don't know, I got an option three you might not like. You know? We... <laughs> Right. I mean, don't we do that? Let me say it like this. We'll say, Lord, if you'll do this, I'll never do this again. How many, I pray that more than the salvation prayer. And I pray the salvation prayer millions of times. I grew up being taught you could lose your salvation if you breathe wrong. Y'all think it's a, right? <laughs> we lost our salvation more than we got it. But um, so every day I lie about having a piece of gum in my pocket at school. And I have to be like, teacher, can I go to the bathroom? And I'd be in the stall, Lord, forgive me. Please come into my heart. <laughs> Some of y'all laughing. You did that too growing up. <laughs> Lost salvation every day. Somebody, one time somebody asked me this. I was a, let, me just, let me just tell you a joke. I was a worship leader. So I was like, you know, leading. And somebody said, uh, hey, uh, when did you get saved? And I was like, oh, man. Because I prayed it so many times, I didn't remember the first one. So I was like, Lord, uh, I mean. So I finally traced it back to right around when I was eight, but I could not tell you the exact time. I couldn't. You know why? Because I prayed that bad boy. I'm, I'm saved. I am saved and saved and saved. So anyway, the longer we live, so we, we, we come to God and we'll give him options like, should I do this or should I do this? Not. What do you want for me, period? It's which one of my thoughtfully controlled options do you want me to do? Both of which I will ultimately choose anyway, but I'm asking you to cover up the ugliness of narcissism. That's, so we, we go to, Lord, do you want me to do this or this? And we think in our heads what we're doing is we're submitting to God. What we're doing is we're leveraging God to cover up what we actually are, which is prideful. What did Deuteronomy 8 say? I read this last week. I'm not going to go back to it. He said, when you get in the land and you're blessed and everything your hand touches prospers and you have riches beyond your dreams, and you have houses and you have all this stuff, you better not forget where you were when I found you. 
which were slaves in Egypt and nothing in the earth. And I took you and I brought you through the wilderness that you should not have survived through. And I allowed you to cross over the Red Sea. And then I allowed you to cross over the Jordan River and brought you into a land that you didn't even work or cultivate. And I handed it to you while you marched around a couple walls and worshiped. So when you get there and you have riches beyond your wildest dreams, because I'm going to fulfill my promise to Abraham, you better not forget where you were when I found you. And what did they do? Forgot where they were when he found them. Somehow we think we got all this because of us. We, somehow we think America became America's because we're innovative. If we are innovative, it's strictly because of Yeshua the Christ. But we did not get here because we're innovative. And we did not get here because we're smart, though we are. We got here solely, solely through Jesus Christ himself. And to be honest with you, with a lot of grace along the way that he should have stopped back then. We cannot give God our options. We need to humble ourselves. I'm speaking to me. And realize if it had not been for the Lord, I would be drifting into an abyss of my own best. But God entered my story, gave me a new name, traded my wrongs for a robe, put a ring on my finger, sat me on his throne. Why? Not because I earned it, but because of grace. Man, that should have gotten a lot better response, but that's okay. Grace isn't a tool to get what you want. Grace is a tool to inherit what he wants for you, whose ways are higher than our ways and whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. That's why the way to honoring access is remembering. Do you know why a lot lot of the awful beliefs that we have in the church today came out of the 18th century. I talk about this a lot, but man, if I could erase one century in American history and history in general, it'd be the 18th. In the 18th century, if you go back and study this, there was a movement called the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment period. Some of y'all remember that from school maybe. And in this period, um, one, they took a lot of Plato beliefs and brought them into the church for whatever reason. But two, they spirit subconsciously, consciously in their head shove God into a distant outer space because they believed they could run the world and do it more effectively than God was. If you, so, so Thomas Jefferson writes the Jefferson Bible, which comes out, and in that period, uh, if you would open up that Bible and read it, you know what would be missing out of that Bible? Every angelic encounter, every prophetic word, the resurrection of Christ himself. All of that's missing. You know what's in there? Love, hope, grace, joy, goodness. Wrath is gone. You don't read about wrath. You know what I mean? Because that ain't what we want. So, so, we sho- we, so they shove God into outer space and they keep moralism. And then label it Christianity and start building churches that are really good moral people that don't have a clue that he's not five light years away, that he's actually in front of your face. And if you want to get technical, inside your skin. But so out of that period, out of that period came a legacy that said we can do this on our own. 
Where was that rooted? All the way back in the beginning where they thought we can do this on our own. Once we get our memory realigned, the next piece to the perseverance is faith. Now here's where I'm going to get to Hebrews 10. Some of y'all wonder. Once we get our memory realigned, the next piece to perseverance is faith. Let me read Hebrews 10. And uh, I'm just going to jump around so y'all follow me the best you can because um, I would love to read all of 10, all of 11, and all of 12, but I'm going to summarize instead. All right. So Hebrews 10, I'm going to read a few verses and then jump a few places. Starting in verse 32, it says this. I'm reading this from the Passion Translation. Uh, Don't you remember those days right after the light shined in your hearts? Okay, remember where the Hebrews are. They're in a place where they've gone a long time from when they first believed, and they're becoming apathetic. So don't you remember the days right after the light shined in your hearts? You endured a great marathon season of suffering hardships, yet you stood your ground. And at times you were publicly and shamefully mistreated, being persecuted for your faith. Then at other times you stood side by side with those who preached the message of hope. You sympathized with those in prison, and when all your belongings were confiscated, you accepted that violation with joy. Convinced that you possess a greater treasure growing in heaven that can never be taken from you. So don't lose your bold, courageous faith, for you are destined for a great reward. You need the strength of endurance or perseverance, interchangeable right there. You need the strength of endurance to reveal the poetry of God's will, and then you receive the promise in full. Okay? So perseverance first, and then on the other side of perseverance, you receive the promise in full. For soon and very soon, the one who is appearing will come without delay. And he also says, my righteous one will live from my faith. Or by faith. But if fear holds them back, my soul is not content with them. Listen to this verse. But we are certainly not those who are held back by fear and perish. We are among those who have faith and experience true life. That word right there, that we don't belong to those who um, are held back by fear. The idea right there is of a shrinking cloth. So if you take a piece of brand, like a brand new t-shirt, you wash it and you throw it in the dryer on high, what happens? It comes out and that thing shrunk three sizes, right? Some of y'all do that on purpose now. But you, why does it shrink? Because it doesn't persevere in the original state it was in. It causes an opposing element, in this case heat, an opposing element to change its own element. You with me? So when he's talking about we do not belong to those who are held back by fear and perish, what he's saying is is we are not those who in the face of opposition change who we are. But instead, we are those who remain consistent in the face of opposition and experience true life, or a lot of your Bibles say, and are saved. Now, faith, chapter 11, faith 
brings our hopes into reality and becomes the foundation needed to acquire the things we long for. It's all the evidence required to prove what is still unseen. This testimony of faith is what previous generations were commended for. Faith empowers us to see that the universe was created beautifully and beautifully coordinated by the power of God's word. Here's another way you can translate that. Faith empowers us to see that the ages were completely equipped. I think that's cool. He spoke and the invisible realm gave birth to all that is seen. And then it goes through and it talks about the faith of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and Rahab. And I'm going to pick it up at 1132. He says this, um, one more page over, 11.32. What more could I say to convince you? For there is not enough time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, excuse me, Jephthah, uh, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Through faith's power, they conquered kingdoms and established true justice. Hello. Their faith fastened onto their promises and pulled them into reality. It was faith that shut the mouths of lions, put out the power of raging fires, and caused many to escape certain death by the sword. Although weak, their faith imparted power to make them strong. Faith sparked courage within them, and they became mighty warriors in battle, pulling armies from another realm into battle array. Do you hear this language? Faith caused them to pull angel armies out of the heavenly realm and fight on their behalf. What? This is old covenant they're talking about. Faith-filled women saw their dead children raised in resurrection power, yet it was faith that enabled others to endure great atrocities. They were stretched out on the wheel and tortured, and they did not deny their faith in order to be freed because they longed for a more honorable and glorious resurrection. Others were mocked and experienced the most severe beating with whips. They were in chains and in prison. Some of these faith champions were brutally killed by stoning, being sawn in two or slaughtered by the sword. These lived in faith as if they were as if they went about wearing goatskins and sheepskins for clothing. They lost everything they possessed. They endured great afflictions, and they were cruelly mistreated. They wandered the earth living in the desert wilderness, in caves, on barren mountains, and in holes in the earth, truly the world was not even worthy of them, not realizing who they were. These were the true heroes, commended for their faith. Yet they lived in hope without receiving the fullness of what was promised them. But now, God has invited us to live in something better than what they had. Faith's fullness. This is so they could be brought to finished perfection alongside of us. Last thing, I'm going to read these three verses, then I'm done. As for us, 
we have all these great witnesses who encircle us like clouds. So we must let go of every wound that has pierced us and sin that we so easily fall into. Then we will be able to run life's marathon race with passion and determination for the path has already been marked out for us. Last two verses. They bring the pinnacle of the faith story right here to Jesus. We look away from the natural realm and we fasten our gaze onto Jesus who birthed faith within us and who leads us forward into faith's perfection. His example is this, because his heart was focused on the joy of knowing you would be his, he endured the agony of the cross and conquered its humiliation and now sits at the right hand throne of the throne of God. So consider carefully how Jesus faced such intense opposition from sinners who oppose their own soul so that you won't become worn down and cave in life's pressures. The author of Hebrews directly ties perseverance or endurance and faith together. Faith in the Greek is the word pistis. Uh, I've taught this before, but just to review. It can be translated faith, belief, trust, or faithfulness. It comes from the word pitho, which means to be persuaded. And this is straight out of the lexicon, so just listen to this. Faith is always a gift from God and never something that can be produced by people. In short, pistis, the Greek word here, for the believer is God's divine persuasion and therefore distinct from human belief or confidence, yet involving it. The Lord continuously birds faith in the yielded believer so they can know what he prefers. In Scripture, faith is God's warranty certifying the revelation he imbirthed within us will come to pass his way. So let me be, let me be clear. In English, in English, the word faith simply means believe. Okay? Your Bible was not written in English. So I'm very thankful for English translations, but this is not what this is talking about. It's not talking about if you believe enough. In fact, the Greek word here is is um, distinct from believing enough. So faith is not conjuring up enough belief in something that it comes to pass. Faith is trusting in what he spoke within you that it shall come to pass his way. So for me to speak something and then have faith in something that I spoke on my own authority is not faith. It's simply really good confidence. Faith is only when I begin to trust and move in what he birthed within me that it will come to pass his way. That's why I say we can't give God options because by me giving him options, I'm not operating in faith. Me operating in faith is going to him saying, how do you want this to work out? What do you want for my life? And whatever he speaks, no matter how much it goes against what I naturally want, I say, I trust you. I don't have to know how it's going to be fulfilled, but I'm going to move off of that that you spoke. So you have Abraham, you have Abraham who was promised the promised land when he leaves Haran 
and he's 75 years old. He's promised descendants like the stars in the sky, sands on the beach. I'm almost done. I know it's 1155. Descendants like the stars in the sky, sand on the beach. Okay? At 75, especially in this time period, it wasn't that impossible for a 75-year-old to have a baby. Today, probably impossible. Okay? But in this time period, for the Lord to speak to a 75-year-old Abram and say, you're going to have a kid... It's doable without God. So what does the Lord do? He waits 25 years until he's 99, almost 100, and then gives him Isaac. Why? Because he had to make sure that what was going to carry this promise of everything he gave Abraham was solely moved by pistis faith that God was going to do what he wanted to do, and he was going to do it his way. And it wasn't going to be because Abraham earned it or did something to achieve it. It was going to be because Abram, 25 years after the word, still believed Yahweh was faithful. Noah builds a boat for 80 years to prepare for an event that had never happened before in history. It had never rained most people don't know that, but the earth was fed by underground springs. It was never the design of earth for rain to fall. That's not how it was created. So what happens is, is the Lord goes to Moses and says, I'm going to flood the earth. I want you to build a boat. He's building something for 80 years for an event that he had never seen ever and still does it. And then a drop of rain starts to fall. And people are looking around saying, what's this? And Noah's looking around saying, I know exactly what this is. It's what I spent the last 80 years building toward. Right? And I say this all the time. It's not mine. I'm going to steal this from Damon Tom. Would you build something for 80 years that only seven other people would be interested in being a part of? Because those eight people were the seed that repopulated the earth. So, so would you have the faith to build something for 80 years, your whole life, that when you get to the end of it, you look around, you have seven other people with you, choosing to believe that what he spoke was powerful enough to take eight people, plant them in the ground, and give birth to repopulation of the entire cosmos? Now, will we have faith to do that today? No, absolutely not. If it don't get accomplished in two months, we quit. I mean, that's what we do. Right? We'll go into a new job, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and a year later, we're cursing it, like I said last week. Why? Because things aren't working out like we wanted them to work out. And Yahweh's saying, you should be thankful that they're not working out the way you wanted them to work out, because I got something better for you. I want to end with this. Matt, go ahead and come up here. Just bump your little knob volume super down. I'm going to end with this. Lord, 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 I got a lot of notes left. That's okay. I'm not going to rush, but I will find a good stopping point. I just want to, um, don't laugh, don't laugh. Some of y'all, some of y'all canceling your lunch plans right now. Um, I don't know if this is helping y'all, it's helping me, so. Who said that? Olivia? Everybody's like, Olivia, Why? Um, just that knob right here on the little thing. Yeah, right there. Boom. There you go. Right there. Perfect. 
All right, Matthew 17. Just, I, just want, I just want to plant a little seed, okay? That's a dad joke too. You'll see in a second. All right, Matthew 17, 20 through 21. Jesus has gone to the mountain of transfiguration. <clears throat> and while he, Peter, James, and John are gone, this is a very familiar story. While they're gone, the other disciples try to cast out a demon unsuccessfully. Anybody remember the story? Okay. Jesus finds them and explains why they couldn't cast it out. And I just want to read this real quick, just, just a verse. In Matthew 17, if I can find it in my Bible. Matthew 17, verse 20 uh, says this. He told them, they asked, why can't we cast it out? He said, it's because of your lack of faith. Okay? Now, remember that in light of what I just described as faith. So it's not that they didn't believe enough because of your lack of faith. I promise you, if you have faith inside of you, no bigger than the size of a small mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move away from here and go over there, and you will see it move. There is nothing you couldn't do. The other way that this could be translated, in fact, let me just read this little footnote right here that Dr. Brian Simmons puts in here. Jesus compares faith to a small seed that grows into a large shrub. Faith will grow as it feeds on spiritual truth found in the Bible. A mountain can also be a symbol of a kingdom. So mountain-moving faith brings the power of God's kingdom to the earth. And when he says nothing will be impossible for you, or there is nothing you couldn't do, the other way you could translate that is nothing is higher or stronger than you. So he says, why can't we cast it out? And he says, it's because of your lack of faith. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could speak to a mountain tell it to jump into the sea. Why? Because if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you have something from God the size of a mustard seed. And this much from Yahweh that you begin to trust in can move mountains that he spoke himself into existence in the first place. So he's not talking about belief. He's talking about trust in what he imberths within you. With me? So I was reading this this week, and the Lord reminded me of one other place that he talks about a mustard seed. And this blew my mind. You ready for this? In Matthew 13, four chapters before this, verse 31, he says this. He says, Jesus taught them a parable. Heaven's kingdom realm can be compared to the tiny mustard seed that a man takes and plants in his field. Although the smallest of all seeds, it eventually grows to becoming the greatest of garden plants, becoming the tree for birds to build their nest in its branches. Now, in Matthew 13, the kingdom of God starts as a mustard seed. In Matthew 17, faith starts as a mustard seed. So connecting faith and perseverance in Hebrews like it did in Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 with Matthew 13 and 17, it's impossible to see and establish the kingdom of God without being consistent, constant, and enduring when you feel you're growing apathetic. 
You with me? Now I'm about to show you something, and I'm going to end right here. It's my last page. I actually got to the end, so here we are. Faith was never meant to start big and diminish over time. Faith was never meant to start big and diminish over time as we consciously or subconsciously believe. What did I say in the beginning? Believers typically start well and finish poor. So faith was never intended to give you a huge mustard seed bush or tree and then you get to the end of your life and all you're holding is a seed. Right? It's actually meant to start as a seed and grow so large over time, it becomes a nesting place for creation. God promised Abram the land of Canaan. Approximately 685 years later, around 30 generations later, Joshua leads the Israelites into Canaan to inherit it long after Abraham is dead. The Lord says, I want you to take a look at this entire land of Canaan. I'm going to give you this land. It's yours. It's yours. 685 years later, Joshua and the Israelites cross the Jordan and head into the promised land to take what the Lord promised Abraham almost 700 years before. And I believe there are some promises that the Lord has spoken in us. I don't believe they're all of them, but I believe there are some promises the Lord has spoken into us that we are called to steward to the point that in 700 years, the faith that was given to us in the beginning doesn't diminish. It grows so large that our 700-year-later legacy can inherit what Yahweh spoke to us today. Would we? Let me say this. Would we have the faith to be okay with that? Would we have the trust to be okay with that? What if Yahweh spoke to us and he said things like, you're going to change the world and when you die, you got a handful of people around you. Would we have the trust to say that's enough to change the world? And I say this all the time. He promised Abraham the promised land and he never owned an acre in the promised land. Did God lie or was he unfaithful? That's a question we're going to have to ask ourselves. Because a lot of us would say here in this setting, no, like, because we know the story. What if you didn't know Joshua? What if the book of Joshua was ripped out of your Bible and you had no idea what happened? Would you get to Deuteronomy and say the Lord was fulfilling his promise? Last week, I talked about this. I'm going to end. I talked about how typically access grows apathy within us. Do y'all remember this? Okay. Usually over time, being exposed to something consistently over time causes us to become apathetic towards it because it's just normal. What Yahweh is trying to do in us is shift our perspective to honoring what we have normal and complete access to, primarily presence. And the way that we're going to do this, the way to honor access, is we have to remember where we came from. Remember how we got here. 
remember where we were when he found us. Church, like I'm telling y'all, church, we, we've got to remember that we were on our way to a real bad place in our identity, in our destiny, in our purpose, because we could not fulfill a law given to us. And instead of allowing us to just trail right into that way, Yahweh said, I've got a better plan. Jesus comes into the earth, dies a death that he did not deserve so that he could take the pen from our hand and begin writing a different story. And if we forget that, we're going to miss the rest of everything. The reason I tell people about Jesus is not because it's my Christian duty. The reason I tell people about Jesus is because when I thought I lost me, he knew where I left me. He picked up all the pieces and put me back together. He is the defender of my heart. When you have been transformed, like I've been transformed, and you've been transformed, and you've been transformed, when you have been that, you can't help but tell other people who have lost their pieces where to find them. And if we, ever, if we ever get to the point where we forget that we were only pieces when he found us, we'll stop sharing with other people who are pieces when we find them. Our job as Christians is when we encounter people who are lost is to show them what we discovered when he found us. We, we don't evangelize because we don't remember that this ain't because of us. This is solely because of grace and Him. He wanted us close. Do you understand theologically what has to happen for you to get to the place where Yahweh wants you close? Think, think about this. He existed long before us. He literally had to redesign his own nature to essentially need you close. What? I mean, think about this. Does God need you? No. But does he need you? Yes. Just let your brain swirl for a minute. Right? If you didn't exist, would he keep going like he was going? Sure. But if you didn't exist, he would royally miss a piece of his creation that he designed himself to need. He could have avoided this whole mess. He, he could have avoided this whole mess and still did it. What kind of love? And we have the audacity to think that this is about us. We have the audacity to come into a church house and think we're going to build something that makes us feel better about ourselves. I don't give a crud about feeling better about myself. The only thing I care about is when we get in this place, we honor the one that shed his blood so that you and I could be so close that he sits us on his own throne. What? We are seated in heavenly places. Why? Not because we earned it, but because he earned it and took my righteousness that was nothing and said, I'll take that, you just take this. And he put a ring on my finger and when I rounded the corner as the prodigal son, thinking I was gonna lock eyes with a dad who was mad and angry and ready to make me his slave, he came running to me, wrapped his arms around me and said, before the words could get out of my mouth. Dad, I just want to be a slave in your house because at least I'll have food. He stops me and says, go get my robe. 
go get my ring. My son is home. I used his stage for my own fame. I used his stage to get somewhere on my own, and he did not throw me out. When I came running around the corner, thinking he was going to take it all the way, he restored it all. I love you today. When I thought I lost me, I didn't know who I was. I didn't even know where to start. I didn't know who the authentic me was. If you showed me, you knew right where I was. And you've reintroduced me to what it means to be loved by Abba. And you picked up all the pieces and began to remold a masterpiece within me that causes you to look at me and be pleased. Forgive me. Forgive me for the moments that I took that for granted. Forgive me for the moments that I have taken that for granted. I don't want people to look at me and see a great preacher or a great husband or a great dad, though I do want to be all those things. I don't want people to look at me and see that primarily. I want people to look at me and say, had it not been for the Lord. I just, I feel us moving. Just bow your heads. Just pray with me for a minute. I feel us moving into an age I feel us moving into an age that I believe is going to rewrite history forever. I believe that with everything in me. I can feel it. But what if this time we could do what no group of people in history has ever done, which is go far and beyond where we started and yet keep the same fire we had when we started? That has never happened in history other than maybe the early church. What if faith today, what if the faith you have within you today was nothing but a mustard seed compared to the faith that you hold when you're 80, 90, and 100 rather than the other way around? That's what it's going to take. That's what it's going to take. So Yahweh, I pray that you would do that. Remind us on a daily basis. Remind us on a daily basis how necessary you are to our story. This is not a message of us being nothing. This isn't total depravity and stuff like that. That's not what I'm teaching. What I'm teaching is, is we are actually perfect. But the only way we're perfect is Jesus Christ. Before we go, y'all, y'all can look at me real quick. Lord, I didn't think I was going to cry, but this is what happens. Y'all know me. Before we go, um, 
Let me just say this. The Lord just put this on my heart, and I just want to encourage y'all today as we are moving out of mundaneness and into excitement. Um, I want to encourage you. We, we often look for the Holy Spirit to move in these really big, grand, crazy ways, which he loves to move in, and I love seeing. But a lot of times we, we look for the Holy Spirit to move in these huge, earth-shattering ways, and we miss how he moves in the little, small, seemingly insignificant pieces of our lives. And those are the majority. You know what I mean? And so I just want to encourage you that as we're moving into a lot of this stuff, as we're going deeper into a lot of this stuff, be aware of what he's doing. Paul teaches that we are those who are moved by the impulses. The mature children of God are moved by the impulses of the Spirit. What that means is when you are ordering your lunch, you are moved by the impulses of the Spirit. Everything you do, you looking at somebody and encouraging them is just as earth shattering as you calling down fire from heaven. And I want to see both. You know what I mean? I want to see fire light this. Well, actually, Holy Spirit fire, not real fire. Holy Spirit fire, light this place up. I do, I do. But I also want us to be just as excited when you can look somebody in the eyes and tell them Jesus loves them as we do when fire consumes people. Because both are the same. 